Uh, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Um, we're continuing our Advent series, Among Us, <clears throat> in which we are taking uh, specific passages. Okay, I know. Well, whatever. Uh, in which we're taking specific passages uh, from uh, the, the Advent story from Jesus' birth narrative. Um, I'm going to pair that uh, in the sermon with, with something that he does later in his life, something um, he either does or says or uh, that kind of demonstrates something about Jesus' character, something essential to Jesus' character. Today we're talking about humble or humility. And then... Um, the, the challenge is to say that if we truly believe that Jesus is God incarnate, right? If, if Jesus represents this uh, best revelation, revealing of the person of God, what in the world could it possibly mean to have a humble God? Like, what, is that even possible? Um, it's a big task today. I'm actually excited about it. I've uh, been looking forward to it all week. I, I think there's a lot going on with this. And frankly, the more I dove into the idea of a humble God, I, uh, I thought, this should be its own series. This, should be, this, is, this feels like unexplored. This feels necessary for this day and age in particular. Uh, when we want things other than a humble God, we, we, we want God uh, who is who's ready to smite our enemies. We want a God who is uh, not just all-powerful, but all-powerful against the other, you know? uh, a God who is capable uh, of, of wielding uh, certain things that our, our sinful inclination desires him to. And so what could it possibly mean to have a humble God? We're going to get into it. Uh, before we do, let's begin with prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we enter your house this morning, we, we not only invite you to be here, we know you're here. We invite you into our lives. We are asking in this moment for you to be the Lord of our life. And so whatever it is that you desire for us, God, the kind of life you want us to live, that is our desire this morning too. I pray through this sermon and through the taking of communion and, um, and through the, the songs we've, we've already sung and are going to sing, the scriptures that we're reading, Lord, that you speak in a clear and mighty way not just about your character, but that for sure, but about what that means for us and how we are to walk through this world that you've created. God, we desire to be your people and to live into what it means to be your people. And so we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Uh, we're going to start, uh, well, actually, I want to start with a bit of a story. When Kendall and I were first married, we had this one album that we listened to a lot. It's by a guy named Fernando Ortega. Do you know Fernando Ortega? He's a musician. Um, the, the album was called Home, and I don't know why we picked this one. Maybe it was the only one we had, and it was back then, it was CDs, uh, and it was just kind of like in the CD player all the time. We just hit play or, hit, uh, you know, whatever, hit shuffle. Remember the shuffle button? And then, uh, and so it was just constantly, and I grew to like him quite a lot because, well, one, I, I liked his style of music, and, and two, there was something about his, 
uh, presence and, and the, the lyrics that uh, struck me as uh, meaningful and as shaped by the, the, certainly the ways I read scripture. And so I guess it was no surprise, and yet a surprise, because I haven't thought of the guy in a while, and in preparation for this sermon, I was uh, looking up um, one of the, the places I like is Christianity Today. I get their magazines, but I, they, they have a, an online presence as well. And he had written an article, and the article I think was titled something like, A Humble God. And so I thought, well, this, this feels right. And then he, he proceeds to tell a story uh, in which he is, he's driving with his 12-year-old daughter at the time, and the two of them are having this kind of nice moment, father-daughter moment, and they look and they see a homeless man. And he points to the homeless man, he says to his 12-year-old daughter, look, there's Jesus, right? And she, of course, is confused, uh, as you might imagine. And, um, and then he's kind of fumbling over himself to figure out, well, what do I mean? Like, wh- what does it mean? You know, and, and he, he quotes from like Matthew 25, and, and, and Jesus is saying, look, if you do things for the least of these, my people, you're doing it to me, right? And so there's the, Jesus is aligning himself not with the kings of the world and, and not with the, the popular people of the world. He's aligning himself with with the least of these, with the humble ones, right? And I thought, yeah, this is, this is right. Um, and yeah, it kind of sets up this, this almost like a problem. Like, why? Like, why there? Because it's not, let's just all be honest here, this is not how we are taught to walk through the world. This is not the way, uh, the, the message we, we get, uh, certainly from our televisions and our, and our internet. And uh, instead it's, you no know, seek power, seek, uh, seek uh, financial stability, uh, frankly, seek, you know, uh, whatever songs you're listening to. I, I, I misquoted once and I said, I want to be a millionaire, you know, this song. But it's not a millionaire. Now it's like a billionaire. Uh, so it's like, you know, it's not enough. Like you're, so these are the, the messages you're getting. And then here Jesus comes along and he's aligning, not with those folks, but uh, with the least of these. And in case you don't like fully agree yet, maybe, maybe you're not on board. Uh, I, I think it's a, an open shut case that this is who Jesus embodies like, and what he intends to say and how he lives his life. But in case you need proof, I've come with notes. So I want to walk you through Jesus' life. And it goes like this. We read a passage this morning from Luke uh, in which we read about Jesus' humble birth, Right? This is like a, a common theme uh, across like nativities and, and people telling the Jesus story and, 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 and this time of year. But we kind of need to just remind ourselves exactly what we're saying. And so Jesus is born not in that royal palace down the street where Herod's sitting. He's born in a barn, right? And he's laid not in some sort of like luxurious cradle, he is laid in a feeding trough where animals have been eating out of, right? And his guests were not these wealthy billionaires who are coming to pay homage to the new king. His guests are the shepherds, right? And even his own mother isn't this like exalted queen uh, who everybody reveres 
she's a young virgin who's not yet married, and there's lots of questions around this. This to me is like, not just, the, not just the what happens, but even the way Luke tells it, even the way Matthew tells it, there's no doubt what they're trying to do. They're trying to explain to us that Jesus is of humble origins, right? And that might be enough. Maybe, maybe the Bible stops there, but it doesn't. Jesus' life actually continues with this, this humble theme. And so all of his friends throughout life are like the fishermen and the sinners and the tax collectors and, and the people who are like on the outskirts of town. He's not going after the rich and the powerful and the saintly. He's, he's mingling with other folks, right? He gravitates toward those in poverty and in desperation. He's constantly around the sick and the lame and the beggars and the prostitutes and the lepers and the demon-possessed who are living on the outskirts of town. And then when he finally does enter Jerusalem as the king that he is, he again, he comes in not on the, the white stallion, we all know, he comes in on, on the donkey, right? Again, it's like every step of his life, there's this humility, there's this humility, this humility. And then even in his death, of course, we all, we all know. If you didn't see this coming, well, you should have. I mean, do I even need to prove like, that, that, that Christ's death represents some sort of humility? Crucifixion in the ancient world, uh, and I mean, if it were to happen today, I guess, it, it's one of the worst ways possible to die. It's, of course, incredibly painful but that's not even the whole reason they do it in the ancient world. The Romans didn't do this just because it was painful. They did it to mock you. They put you elevated on a cross so that people look up and they think, they mockingly elevate you as somebody of status, right? And they strip you naked and they flog you, and they hurt you, right? I mean, this is Jesus' death. I, I don't, the humility there is like, that's exactly how it all worked. So his birth, his life, his death, it's all humble, right? And if that weren't enough, then there's his teaching. His teaching is filled with humility, Matthew 18, 1 to 5. You can write these passages down and, and search them yourself at some point. I'll just read through them very quickly here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what does he do? He calls a child, puts him in the midst of everyone and says, truly, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Couldn't be clearer, frankly, except it's not entirely clear how we do that and, and what the humility means, but his emphasis on humility is certainly clear. Matthew 23, 11 to 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14. 
Luke 14, he's at a Pharisee's house, and he is giving instructions to the people who are there about essentially how to enter a party. When you go to a party, he says, whatever you do, don't go to that top seat, right? The, The seat that's right next to the guy who's throwing the party. He says, no, you take the bottom seat, and then you wait to be called up. And the concluding verse to this whole passage is in verse 11, and he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's not done. Luke 18, 9 to 14. This is Jesus telling a parable, and it's the parable of, of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And if you don't recall, the Pharisees up front praising God for all his righteousness, and the tax collector is sitting in the back of the pews, right? And he's on his knees, and he says, I'm not worthy, right? And the Pharisee's up front, and the Pharisee's saying, I am so glad, God, that I'm not like that guy in the back row who's having to confess all these sins and is a horrible excuse for a human being. And then Jesus says, who do you think goes home justified on that day? And so he concludes this way. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, that is, the tax collector did, rather than the other. And why is the important part. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One final passage, Matthew 20. Matthew 20, 26 to 28. Here Jesus is is preparing to enter into uh, Jerusalem. His disciples are fighting about who's the most important, who gets that high seat. And Jesus simply says, Don't do this. It shall not be this way among you. Whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have here Jesus' birth in how it gets portrayed and actually what happens, right? We have Jesus' life what happens to him, the kind of people he hangs out with. We have his death and how that happens. And then we have Jesus' teaching, all of which, across the board, right? Humility is central. This is a key piece of what it means to follow Jesus and who Jesus was trying to be. One more passage, and this is our passage for the day. So if you'll turn with me to John 13, John 13, verses 1 through 8, here is, um, I don't, you know, sometimes I surprise myself with, with things I've, I've been here almost seven years, and I don't think I've talked about foot washing. <laughs> this passage has never come up. Um, today's the day. <clears throat> All right, John 13. Here Jesus is. He's with his friends. Um, It's getting close to the final week. And he's he's talking with his friends. John, by the way, doesn't have uh, the, the scene where Jesus does communion, where he, he breaks the bread and, 
and the cup. Instead, John offers us this scene, which is kind of the corollary, actually. And being it, uh, it being a communion day uh, is, is kind of appropriate, um, in fact. Um, but here we see Jesus embodying, again, what it means to be humble. And so we'll just read it together, starting in verse 1. Now, before the, uh, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I'm just going to say, there's so much in all of these verses that we're just not going to get to. And the, the fact that this theme of love runs through it the way it does is, is truly remarkable. And I think it actually does get at a piece of what it means for him to be humble. We'll come back to that. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. It's the briefest comment. Don't miss this. John is setting us up to say Jesus knows precisely who he is in this moment. He is the one who came from God and is going back to God. We can't miss that, right? That Jesus isn't acting, he's about to wash the disciples' feet, right? He's not acting in a way that says, um, oh, I'm like this, this lowly human, I, I should be a servant. No, he knows exactly who he is, right? He's, he's God incarnate. He has come from God, he's going back to God, and now here he's demonstrating to us in full the kind of God that we have. And so he goes on. He laid aside his outer garments, Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. And to be clear, foot washing in the ancient world was common. It was very common. What was not common was for your rabbi to do it to you? Was for your king to do it to you? Was for your lord to do it to your servant, right? That was completely radical. This doesn't happen. And so for Jesus to pick up the basin and the towel and to serve his servants, his students, those people who are trying to submit to him, to serve them in that way, he, he's doing something incredibly countercultural and radical. And so uh, Jesus, um, oh, he, he came to Simon Peter, uh, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Um, Jesus answered, what I am doing, you don't understand, but someday you're going to. And so Peter said, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. Uh, and Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, then you don't have a share with me. 
which again gets at Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, is always talking on like two levels, right? So he's saying the one thing that is like the obvious literal reading, and then he's always saying something else. And in this case, it's pretty clear to me that what he's saying is, listen, Peter, if I don't wash your sins for you, nobody can do this, right? Nobody can do this. Only I can do this, and you've got to let me do this. And here he's kind of preparing for his own death. And then he's preparing his disciples for how they are supposed to walk through the world. Peter, of course, says like, yeah, totally wash my whole body now. And Jesus kind of was like, no, it's not like that. (laughs) Skipping ahead to 12, uh, he finishes up this way. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher, right? You call me rabbi, and you call me Lord. And in this way, like Lord, master, uh, same thing, servants, right? Lords have servants and slaves, and and they're saying, you know, and he's saying like, yeah, I am your teacher. You call me teacher. You call me Lord, and you're right, because I am. If I, your Lord and your teacher, and the thing he doesn't say here is your God, This is actually the the confession you get at the end of John. Philip says, my Lord and my God to Jesus, right? He's saying, if I'm these things to you, if I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What is humility? What is humility? I think it's misunderstood. Uh, Rick Warren's got a nice definition. Um, He's stealing it kind of from C.S. Lewis, and I'll give you that in a second. But he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Have you heard this one before? It's not thinking less of yourself, so saying, oh, I'm awful and I'm terrible. It's just not thinking of yourself as much as other people do. So I want to give you a few things Jesus never says that I think ties into Warren's definition of humility here. Jesus never says, nor should he, I'm just a nobody. I should be serving others. They shouldn't be serving me. This is not what Jesus does, right? This is not how he thinks. And he's not inviting us into that way of thinking either, really. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we had a sermon in Luke 7. Do you remember? And there was a woman who came and she washed Jesus' feet. You recall that? Jesus wasn't like, stop, stop the, the foot washing, right? I'm supposed to be washing your feet. No, he received it. And he said, basically, thank you. I can see your love for me, and I am moved by it. Now go in peace with your sins forgiven. Like, that, was, that was what happened in that situation, right? And so Jesus is not saying, oh, I'm just a nobody. Everybody, uh, I'll serve others, but no, nobody should serve me. And Jesus is not saying, uh, I wonder what my disciples are thinking of me right now. Maybe if I wash their feet they'll like me more. This might be 
some of our reasons for being servants in this world. Have you experienced this? Some of you will resonate with this one. If I just, if I just do this thing for this other person, well, then, then the result is that they like me. And that's not the kind of humility Jesus is talking about here. And it's not the kind of service he's talking about. Other things Jesus doesn't say, I hope the Pharisees aren't mad at me. They're always so angry when they're with me. (laughs) No, this is not how he talks. Jesus also doesn't say things like, boy, if I were a better speaker, I could convince all of these people that they need God in their lives. And then they would believe me. He also doesn't say things like, if I were a little more charismatic, word of the week, year, if I had more riz, maybe people would stand up when others want to hurt me. I must be deserving of the wrath of... Jesus doesn't say these things, right? Humility isn't some sort of false humility where he says, oh, I just need to be a better speaker. I just, I just need to have more charisma. I, I just need this or that in my life. This isn't what he's saying at all. He expresses a true humility, which, to go back to Warren's quote, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's Jesus isn't thinking of himself in those moments at all. He's not thinking, I need to be a better speaker, He's showing up and, and, and he's with the people he's speaking to. And he's, he's thinking about their needs in that moment. I can think of two really good reasons why Jesus, in his humility, wouldn't say these things. <clears throat> One is because true humility, it still recognizes the truth. And frankly, even more than the opposite of humility, which is like pride or selfishness or, or self-centeredness, right? That doesn't recognize the truth of a situation, but, but true humility can and, and does. And so the truth is that Jesus, in all of those moments of his life, despite being humble of origin, living a humble life, uh, uh, dying a humble death, right, despite all of that, he still knows the truth of it all, which is that he is Savior, that he is Lord, that he is righteous, that he is God incarnate. He knows all of this, right? And yet he can still walk a humble life. So he still recognizes the truth and doesn't downplay the truth in his life, which definitely pertains to us. It, at least it should. Because a false humility wants to say, when someone says to me, hey, Eric, that was an amazing sermon. False humility says, oh no, it was actually terrible. It was, it was awful. True humility would say something like, well, depending on the situation, I worked really hard on that. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Or, you know what? I really I felt God was speaking in a way that doesn't necessarily always happen, but today I felt it too. It, God's word like touched me. Or maybe for you, like someone comes up to you and, and offers you a true thanks or a, or a true praise of some kind. There's no need to say, oh, I'm terrible, I'm awful. 
Truth still wins. Truth still matters. And you can say thank you and still be humble. But the second thing, the second uh, reason why I think Jesus, in his humility, wouldn't say any of those things is, again, because humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking of ourselves less. Thinking of myself less often. It's the opposite of self-centered. It is other-centered. And so the truth of the matter goes like this. We are called to be humble, but we must recognize the truth of who we are and not downplay this in any way. You are God's child. You are made in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you for you. You are God's workmanship, according to Ephesians 2.10. Your body is a holy temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.9. And 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That is who we are, and there is no reason to downplay any of that. Therefore, to be humble is not to deny your worth or your value. It's to embrace it and to tell the truth about it. And then the second thing is thinking less of ourselves. Thinking of ourselves less often is what I really mean. So Jesus is not running around through his life worried about what other people think of him because he's not thinking of him, right? This is actually the real secret. So there's, there's two kinds of humility. I vaguely remember this conversation uh, with Neil one day. It was a, it was a wonderful conversation. And there's, there's the one humility or the, 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 the one that we all know uh, which is when someone goes around like bragging about how awesome they are, well, that's clearly not humility, is it? Like the one, the one who says, oh, I've got riches, I've got fame, and, and like we all know, like Jesus has some very clear things to say something about, uh, about that person. The sneaky one that we religious folks often kind of fall into is thinking, oh, well, if I just like downplay uh, like what's happening in my life or, or I, I need to worry about what so-and-so's uh, thinking of me, if they're mad at me or, or maybe they're, uh, they're, uh, they're sad and, and, and so I need to like somehow fix them and, and I'm worried about how they are thinking of me. I'm really not thinking of them in that situation, am I? I'm thinking of me. I'm highlighting me in my life. And I don't think Jesus shows up this way in the world. And so he's not running around the world wondering what other people are thinking of him. He isn't thinking things like, if I'm a better teacher, maybe people listen to me, right? If I just fix, if I just fix, that's, that's walking around the world thinking, again, of me. Or he's not saying, if I'm more likable, maybe they'll want to be with me. He's not thinking about himself in that way at all. Instead, when Jesus shows up on the scene, 
How does he show up? He shows up in a way that says, what does this crowd need from me? And he sees each individual and he says, today they need bread and fish and I can do that. I have that within me and I can give that to them. Or he shows up and there's a blind beggar and this man, he needs sight. And Jesus says, I can do that. I can show up in that way for this man. And he might show up and there's a Pharisee sitting there and Jesus might start with, well, what does he need from me? And the Pharisee's response might be, nothing. And Jesus might recognize there is nothing that I can do for this man or give this person because he doesn't need me, right? And to that person, I imagine Jesus is okay just walking away. The C.S. Lewis Fuller quote of what Warren uh, recaps goes something like this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be uh, a sort of greasy, smarmy person, always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, It'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking of himself at all. The question remains, however, what would it mean for God to be humble? And I don't confess to have like a perfect answer here. But I'm going to start with a story that might illuminate what this could look like. The story is, uh, is from Soren Kierkegaard, a, a famous Dutch philosopher from the 1800s. I assure you it's, it's a good story, though. He says, suppose there's a king who loved a humble maiden. He was a great king, and he could have whatever he wanted. Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign state trembled before his power. They would have all sent ambassadors to the wedding. And he realized that if he had asked his courtiers, they would say, your majesty is about to confer favor upon the maiden for which she can never be sufficiently grateful her whole life long. And that was the problem. Even if she wanted to come with him, he would never know for certain if she would have loved him for himself so he wrestled with his troubled thoughts alone. And finally he decided, if she could not come up to his high station and be sure to love him freely, he must descend to hers. And he must descend stripped of his royal power and wealth, for only then would he know if his beloved loved him freely as equals to win her love. I imagine this is a pretty good story of God's story with us. Now, many of us want a God who's gonna do lots of powerful things for us. And perhaps that's why you're in this Christian religion business. You want the powerful God who's gonna do all the things you want God to do. You may get disappointed, I'm just gonna, Put that one out there. 
And at some point, you may decide, well, he's not powerful enough for me. He's not doing the things I want this God to do. And perhaps instead, we get a God who strips himself of his power and comes and walks in our midst because he loves us. And he wants us to choose him like the humble maiden choosing a lover. If God were humble, what would this mean? First, I think it would mean this. God is no, uh, this is a a phrase you, you see in scripture sometimes, he's no respecter of persons, which is simply to say that God is confident with who he is and doesn't derive his value from being around the popular people or the rich people or the powerful people. God's very comfortable being God. In fact, when Moses meets him back in the, the, with the burning bush, he says, listen, Moses, I am who I am, right? I am who I am. God sees the value of us, not dissimilarly, not in what we can do for him or what we can produce, what we've accomplished, who we know. These are not the things that impress God. God values us because we are his workmanship. We are his children. We are simply God's beloved. The second thing I'd say is that a humble God, what does this mean? Well, it turns out that power, status, riches, and uh, all of these sorts of things that God has in God's holiness and greatness were things that God was very willing to give up, right? When Jesus comes to this earth, he strips himself of all of those. There's this phrase uh, that Paul uses, kenosis. He kind of empties himself of some of these divine uh, rights and powers that he has. And if God is willing to give this up, the question we've got to ask is, are we? Are we willing to give these things up? Uh, Comedian Jim Carrey, you didn't see this one coming, Uh, says, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. I thought, that's good. I wish everyone could be rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. God might say that. (laughs) God's got all the things God needs. And he wanted one more thing, and that was you and me, and us, because God loves us. The last thing I'd say is this. If God were humble, humility is the opposite of self-centered and and selfish and pride, and, and this is a whole rabbit trail that's definitely worth going down. And so if God is humble, then God must be the least selfish being in the world, If we have a humble God, then what we have is a God who is less concerned about his own image and the posturing of the self and is totally and completely turned outward toward others. The Trinity itself is a community, and theologians over time have said it is this outward flowing of love from one person of the Trinity to the next, to the next, to the next. And so when God teaches us in his scriptures that we are to love 
our neighbor and to love God. This is precisely what God's already doing and has been doing since eternity. God is like that M.C. Escher painting, that just the water that flows into itself over and over and over again. God is so unconcerned with self and so in love with others, and I'd say with you, that he was willing to be born into a humble life. He lived a humble life. He died a humble death on a cross. And why? Because he loves us so much and he wants us to be with him and to love him. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you teach us what love is as you pour yourself out for one another and as we see so clearly in the life of Jesus, this fullest revelation of who you are, God. We see in the life of Jesus somebody who came in order to empty himself for humanity to die a humble death, a humiliating death, to be raised from the dead that we might come to you, that we might be saved by you, that we might be in relationship with you because this is what you have created us for. God, I pray this morning that you touch the hearts of the people in this room. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we are reminded of just what a gift you have given us. You have poured out your very lifeblood for us. You have broken your body for us. You have shed your blood for us. And why? Simply put, you love us that much. God, that is indeed a gift we can never repay. There is no way to repay this. We know this. And so, God, what do we do? God, we live our lives in a manner that is the way, in, in keeping with the way you lived. And just as you taught those disciples on that day you washed their feet so many years ago, that we too are to be servants to this world and to one another, and that we're to love in this way, God, may we, may we inhabit this world in that same way. May we show up in people's lives, looking them in the eye and asking them, what do they need from me today? How can I serve today? Who needs me today? God, if we live like that, if we live with, with your uh, power and purpose coursing through us in that way, God, you've got big things in store for South Run Baptist Church. For all that, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.